How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The word of the Lord. So this summer we are doing a series on the Psalms. And the Psalms as the prayer book of the Bible. And so in a country where still the majority of people claim to pray daily and uh, the vast majority of Christians pray at least daily, uh, the Psalms are an indispensable resource. And so if prayer seems mysterious or difficult or dry, we can open the Psalms. And right there, it's like having an expert teacher right at our fingertips, right there on your nightstand. And so uh, this quick summary, a helpful rubric that I'm lifting up when we think about the Psalms, we enter into them. What, what kind of words are we encountering? Uh, so there's three different kinds of Psalms with four different things that they really say to God, broadly speaking. So Psalms of orientation that express our core theological bedrock principles. There's Psalms of disorientation, which are the Psalms which someone says when life happens and all of those core principles are called into question. And then there's Psalms of reorientation or new orientation where God shows up in a fresh way and one gets a fresh perspective on his mercy and grace. And so those are the three types of psalms and the four different things that the psalmist really says to God. Uh, The first one is, you're great. The second one is, help. The third one is, I trust you. And the last one is, thank you. So three different kinds of psalms, four different ways of addressing God. And so with those in mind, we can read, study, interpret, and pray the Psalms with a greater degree of both understanding and devotion. Because it's not just, the Psalms are are, are something uh, that teach us quite powerfully and well, that it's not just about getting the right information into our heads. That's not what a life of faith is about. It's, it's, It's about that head, heart, life connection. And so these, I think, kind of Points, you know, the types of psalms and the way they talk to God, what they do is they provide us with sort of a helpful rubric or framework that we can use when we go into the psalms and they help us if we ever find ourselves getting confused or lost. So, with all that said, now we turn to Psalm 13 itself. And so, if you were using that sort of matrix or rubric that I provided above, uh, what type of psalm would you say Psalm 13 is of the three types? Disorientation. There ever was a psalm of disorientation, this is it. And the primary message to God is help. Help me. Psalm 13 is called a psalm of individual lament. And really it's the quintessential example of, and this is the most common type of psalm. Psalms of disorientation. A third to a half, depending on how you want to categorize them, are are psalms of disorientation. Psalms that are a response to what happens when the bottom falls out and it seems like God is far away. But trouble, problems, enemies, they're right there. They're right in your face. These are psalms that you, you say and you pray when you are overwhelmed with questions but don't seem to have any answers. 
These are the psalms that are set in anger, fear, bitterness, disappointment, confusion, and doubt. Right? Psalms of disorientation are real and raw, and they give the faithful, I think, not just permission, but a, a mandate to be this honest with God ourselves. And, and it's pretty surprising when we stop and think about it, because the way that we use the psalms in worship are, are normally the happy parts, sort of the call to worship parts, the you're great parts, or the thank you parts, or the I trust you parts. But when there's so much help, in the Psalms. I wonder what it is about those that makes religious folks uncomfortable. I think, you know, we often have this idea that when it comes to prayer, that's the time when we sort of go before God and we close our eyes and it's time to be on our best behavior. Because if we say nice things in just the right way, maybe that might make God more liable to listen to what we have to say. And so we hear psalms of disorientation as the voice of a faith that is slipping into doubt. Or, or as some kind of move from belief to unbelief. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth. To honestly cry out to God for help isn't weakness. It's not a lack of faith. It's precisely the opposite. Calvin puts it this way marvelously in his commentary on Psalm 13 where he writes... When he, and he's referring to to David here, when he saw not a single ray of good hope to whatever quarter he turned, so far as human reason could judge, constrained by grief, he cries out that God did not regard him. And yet by this very complaint, he gives evidence that faith enabled him to rise higher and to conclude, contrary to the judgment of the flesh, that his welfare was secure in the hand of God. Had it been otherwise... How could he direct his groanings and prayers to him? Right? That's the great truth that in saying, God, you're ignoring me. You're far from me. Is itself a statement, a confession of faith and trust in the God who hears. And so when we're disoriented, crying out for help isn't faithless. It's the most faithful thing we can do. And this experience of disorientation is universal. So much of life is spent dealing with the world when things have not gone according to plan. A loved one dies unexpectedly. We lose a job. A relationship crumbles. We're lonely. We we move away from home for the first time. We go live in a new city. We started a new school. We change careers. We have an accident. Heck, just trying to be a parent is one disorientation after another. When we realize that our kids are endlessly mysterious, difficult to understand, and impossible to control. I was with a friend of mine this past week who's the father of three daughters, and they're between the ages of 8 and 13. And we were talking about real examples of disorientation from life. And he said his mind immediately went to the struggles that he and his wife are having parenting their their daughters, saying, like, what did we do wrong? And these are good kids, saying, what did we do wrong? And how could I go back in time and change what we're doing, especially the 13-year-old? Nothing they're doing. He's like, nothing we do works. We can't do anything right. And that, brothers and sisters, that's the kind of disorientation. What do we do? I thought I was good. I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I had a lot of years of experience. I thought I was ready for what's going to come next. And then nothing you're doing is working. And what do we do but say to God, 
help. And so it has so much to teach us about how we can pray in the midst of the disorientations we are experiencing or that we will experience. And so there's, there's really there's three movements that we see in this, in this uh, psalm of disorientation. We have a complaint portion, a plea portion, and a praise portion. And so the first two verses of, of this psalm are a series of five questions that are really a way of complaining to God in the midst of what have, must have been a, a profound and prolonged season of disorientation. How long, O oh Lord, is a rhetorical question that basically says, I, I'm at the breaking point. I can't take anymore. He needs an answer from the Lord that speaks to the three dimensions, really the three dimensions of disorientation that he's experiencing, uh, religious and, and, and social and personal. Regarding his religious disorientation, he cries, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? And so in the midst of this distress, the psalmist feels as though God has abandoned or forgotten him. In uh, Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase, he, he, translates, he translates these verses as this. He says, Long enough, God. You've ignored me long enough. I've looked at the back of your head long enough. So crying to God for help, it starts by admitting that we feel as though God has forgotten us. That God's been too busy to pay attention to us. So that's the religious dimension of, of complaining. But then there's the personal dimension of disorientation as well. It, it's incredibly isolating to be in a place of disorientation. When we're disoriented, we feel alone. And like no one else understands the pain that we're going through. That's why the psalmist says, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. Right? In the midst of crises, we want to think that we have this ability to think our way out of the problem. But the truth is our thoughts become more like our enemies than our friends. This is what they call in the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a, a kind of therapy that they sometimes use for people who are in a place of depression or stress or anxiety, basically saying, like, our thoughts become our enemies. And they start telling us lies, and we believe those lies because the thoughts are in our heads. And so you have to sort of talk back to them. They call them cognitive distortions. But when we're disoriented, our thinking is broken. And so instead of our rationality helping us out of this despair, it only continues to fill our hearts with sorrow and worry. And we start thinking things like, I'm trapped. I'm doomed. I'm never going to get out of this. I'll never feel better. My life will never get better. I'm a failure. God hates me. He's punishing me. These are the thoughts that assail us and they, they, they feed our distress. And the twisted thing is that we believe them. And so our religious alienation plays into our psychological distress that only heightens our sense of disorientation. And then there's the social implications of disorientation. When we're in that place, it seems like the world is filled with enemies, real or imagined. We're ostracized. We're on our own. No one can help us. No one can understand us. They're only going to hurt us. And so when we experience disorientation, we lose that sense of place, that sense of belonging, that sense of community. So disorientation, then, it involves losing our sense of God's presence and our trust in God's goodness. It, it involves deep personal and psychological pain and a profound 
rupture in feeling like we belong somewhere to some group of people, like we even have a people. And so Psalm 13 invites us first when we're faced with that kind of predicament, when we feel like we don't know which way is up, what's the first thing we can do? We can complain to God. We can say, God, this is what's happening now. And we can say, where are you? Psalm 13 gives us permission that whatever is going on in our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our lives, God can take it. So it's up to you and I to bring it. But this prayer of disorientation, it doesn't stop with complaining. It moves on to plea, to asking God for something. And so one of the reasons that we get stuck in places of disorientation is that we never make that move, that crucial move, from complaint to plea. And as in many sources of conflict in our life, this is often where we get stuck. We don't make that move from complaint to plea saying, this is what's wrong, and here's what I need you to do about it. If we look at any sort of relational conflict that we've dealt with in our lives where we get stuck, there's often no asking for what I actually need from this person. It's just saying, this is what you've done wrong. This is how you failed me. This is how I'm feeling disoriented with you. And so we just get stuck in in this vortex, and we spiral down, ruminating on how bad everything is, and we forget or we neglect to ask, you know, what is it that we need that would bring us out of this mess? And so the psalmist starts by saying, here's what's wrong. But then he moves on, and he says, God, here is exactly what I need from you. Here's what I'm asking you for. And the psalmist asks God for three things. He says, look at me, answer me, And these first two are closely related. They're basically a plea for attention. God, stop ignoring me. Look me in the eye. Instead of showing me the back of of your head, look at me in the face. And so it's a request for this reversal of this situation we saw in the first two verses. We're saying, God, basically I don't feel like you're paying attention to me. Answer me instead of being silent. And the third plea asker, after asking for God's attention and God's answer, is the psalmist really finally asked for the, 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 the crucial thing that he needs to get out of this mess. And what he asked for is really surprising. It's unexpected. So you'd think the psalmist is complaining about enemies. So what he's going to ask for is, God, deliver me from them, uh, give me victory over them, crush them, destroy them. But that's not what he asked for. Instead, he says, he asks for this really curious thing. He says, God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Light up my eyes. It's kind of a weird thing to ask for. And it's difficult to understand, but what I think he's asking for is a fresh perspective, a new way of seeing the world. Right? He asks for his vision to, and his understanding to be infused with God's grace. He's asking to see the world again through the eyes of faith, knowing that God is the source of all life, material and spiritual, and that no circumstance, no enemy, no trial, no suffering, no sickness can take that away. And so where currently he only sees death, despair, and enemies around every corner, the psalmist is asking to be given eyes to see the world again through a vision of hope. And restoration. And the kingdom. He's saying, I'm not looking at the world in the right way now, God. Help me see what's happening in a different way. 
And so that's when the psalm moves from plea to praise. And thus it completes this threefold movement we see. Complaint, plea, praise. And, and it's an abrupt move. You know, verse 4 to 5, boom. It changes right there. And, and, and this move has confused commentators over the years. And so they've said, what happens between verse 4 and verse 5? That this person who is complaining to God and then saying, God, you've got to do something, otherwise my enemies are going to be gloating over me. And then at the end he's like, God, I'm going to give you praise. What, what, what happened? How can this voice that has been crying out so loudly help me now be saying to God, you're great? How can we resolve this contradiction? This Old Testament scholar, James Luther Mays, has what I think is a profound answer. He says, there is a powerful testimony to God in what seems a serious inconsistency in the prayer. It speaks to God in complaint and praise. Speaks out of the experience of forsakenness and grace, of abandonment and salvation. Interpreters have sought all kinds of ways to hold the two together to make sense of the juxtaposition. And if you read through the scholarship, there's all kinds of wild theories out there. But some know better. Martin Luther, in his exposition of the psalm, calls the mood of the prayer, and this is beautiful, the state in which hope despairs, and yet despair hopes at the same time. So the state in which hope despairs, and yet despair hopes at the same time. And all that lives is the groaning that cannot be uttered, wherewith the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, brooding over the water shrouded in darkness. This no one understands who has not yet tasted it. But if you've tasted it, then you understand it, and it's not a contradiction. It makes perfect sense. There's no contradiction between complaint and praise. There is a deep coherence where the people of God, though beleaguered and distraught, trust in the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. Again, May says, there is a coherence which holds the apparently separate moments together. God is so much a God of blessing and salvation that for the psalmist, he must speak of tribulation and terror as the absence of God. Yet God is so much the God of steadfast love for the psalmist that he can speak to God in the midst of tribulation and terror as the God of his salvation. This is the deep radical knowledge of faith which cannot separate God from any experience of life and perseveres in construing all, including life's worst, in terms of a relation to God. A faith that dares to construe everything, including life's worst in relationship to God. That's faith. And it is an expression of, of such a powerful experience of graciousness that it refuses to see the present apart from God and cannot imagine the future apart from his salvation. As Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Complaint and praise alike are the triumph of grace. And though we're disoriented and, and the compass of our lives is spinning around and around and around and around and we have no direction, Christ remains our true north. We just have to find. When I think about disorientation in, in the real world, real 
life. I know that, that the past couple of weeks have been a or disorienting time specifically in our city with, with the verdict and the trial of Officer Yanez and the killing of Philando Castile. And so the verdict opens old wounds and then, and then all of the video is released to the public and, and that opens even more old wounds about protest against differential treatment or discrimination by police, the criminal justice system. And so there's so much anger and lament and crying out. And people watch it and everything happens so quickly. And people go, did it have to end that way? And it it, it did, so why did it do it? And I can't answer that question this morning. But what I can say is that lament, when faced with a situation like that. Lament is the appropriate response. And, and lament is something that's been lost, I think, by and large, by the church in America, you know, in favor of kind of a, a shiny, happy people religiosity where we get together every Sunday and, you know, we sing happy, clappy songs and we just look at each other and go, I'm okay, you're okay, all right. See you next week. But one place where lament has not been lost or neglected is the black church. And so if you want to know what Psalm 13 looks like in the real world, we, we, we can learn from really a riff that uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave on this psalm uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, 1965. And it's the crescendo to this amazing sermon called, Our God is Marching On. And it climaxes with these words, he says. I know you're asking today, how long will it take? There, right there, we're in Psalm 13. How long will it take? Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men, darken their understanding, and drive bright-eyed wisdom from her sacred throne? Somebody's asking, when will wounded justice, lying prostrate on the streets of Selma and Birmingham and communities all over the South, be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men? Somebody's asking, when will the radiant star of hope be plunged against the nocturnal bosom of this lonely night, plucked from the weary souls with chains of fear and the manacles of death? How long will justice be crucified and truth bear it? First two verses right there of Psalm 13. But then he continues, I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, However frustrating the hour, it will not be long because truth crushed to earth will rise again. How long, not long, because no lie can live forever. How long, not long, because ye shall reap what you sow. How long, not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. How long, not long, because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. That's Psalm 13. And that, brothers...